Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast. Steve English and David Emmett here today just to talk through some of the final pre-season tests. The Qatar MotoGP test is coming up. Superbikes will have the Phillip Island test before round one. And David, just before we get started, there's actually quite a lot for us to talk about through the course of today because we've got different manufacturers that surprised in Malaysia and we'll have to wait and see whether or not they can back it up in Qatar. And then some manufacturers out to play a little bit of catch up as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the other thing is that um, Sepang and Qatar are two very, very different tracks uh, for a lot of reasons. Conditions different, tracks different. Um, also, it's going to be a bit weird because they've shifted the uh, starting time of the Qatar race back an hour again. So it's 6 p.m. and not 7 p.m. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how that affects how people go testing there because, um, you know, it makes... It makes very little sense. So, I mean, it will make sense to go out before the sun goes down because uh, you have to understand, uh, you know, practice and qualifying uh, or practice will be during the daytime. Um, so you have to understand how the tires are going to react to the asphalt. Um, but uh, it's not going to be, you know, there's not really an awful lot of point going because I think they ride until about 9 p.m. There's not a lot of point uh, going going riding at sort of, you know, upper state because – the, the conditions are never going to be anything like that yeah it's going to be interesting to see how the teams actually use their time because I remember going to the Qatar test in 2015 and that was whenever the race was later in the day and suddenly during the test teams wouldn't go out in the in what was effectively the morning time of that session you know in the early hours of the afternoon just because it wasn't relevant for the race and then over the course of the next couple of years you ended up where suddenly the race was getting earlier and earlier and earlier and that testing time became more and more valuable yeah, absolutely. And it's obvious why they had to change it because I, I remember going there in uh, 2000, I want to say 2011, 2012, uh, when Ben Spees was on the factory Yamaha. And, um, you know, people were th basically, especially around after half past nine, 10 o'clock, uh, the track became incredibly treacherous because uh, the dew would descend and you just wouldn't be able to see it. And it would it would catch a lot of people out that all of a sudden there'd be a spate of crashes and you'd have no real explanation for what was going on. Yeah, and that was always the big problem. That's why, obviously, as you said, David, they had to change the times a little bit. I think for all of our listeners, they're probably wondering just where's that other voice? Where's Neil Morrison today? And uh, we actually had a question in, David, from some. We opened up to uh, Twitter just to get some questions for the show. So we'll get to a lot of them later on. But we actually had a question from Matt Jones. And Matt must have known something was going to be up for today because without Neil on the show, he's down in Jerez for the Moto2 testing. Uh, Matt was wondering, when are we going to see Big Neil back on the TV in a new season of Men Behaving Badly? So maybe, Dave, Neil's just tricking us all and he's actually out recording that now rather than being down at the Moto2 test. That uh, sounds uh, extremely plausible. I wouldn't put it past him. Yeah, I've always thought that there was something about Neil. You know, definitely could see him on on the big screen at some point or another. But uh, Dave, just for you, we're going to move pretty quickly on to the Qatar test and talk about a few things for what to expect from that. But what's the big thing that you're excited to see in Qatar, maybe after you've come back from Malaysia, that you want to see whether or not, you know, one one bike, one rider, one team can uh, really make a step forward this year? Uh, well, I mean, like the Qatar test, first of all, is the test where Ducati actually show off the um, a trickery which they've got up their sleeve, uh, which no one will be able to copy because uh, generally it's uh, 
two weeks is too it's too short a time for people to start copying um, uh, aerodynamics and understanding what they've done. So, um, looking forward to seeing what uh, what Gigi Delinia has, uh, has up his sleeve. Um, what we saw at Sepang was the, um, the 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 fact that especially the Suzuki's and the Yamahas, the Suzuki's and the Yamahas look really really good this year. So it's going to be interesting to see how that situation develops to see um, uh, how they behave at a track, which is, I mean, the, the, you know, in terms of uh, the front straight, it's a really really um, that's a track where where, where uh, high where top speed really counts um but it's also a really flying track so you know it, we saw last year uh year before yamaha's always been cl- sort of there uh, there or thereabouts it's going to be very important also for honda um for their engine uh it, it's a, only a sort of a smaller update than it was last year but they've got to find out because the air is so much cooler uh when they actually go riding in um uh, in qatar uh, the, the the engine produces much more power and it um uh, it, it comes in a, a little bit more aggressively uh so it'll be interesting to see you know what that's that's like marquez has obviously adds uh, an extra sort of 10 days of, um, of recovery to try to get some strength back in his shoulder to see if he can do sort of longer runs if he can uh, uh, put together some uh, some longer things uh, and also Ducati because it feels it felt at Sepang like um, Suzuki and Yamaha had made I don't know a step and a half forward and it felt like Honda and Ducati had made sort of half a half a step or three quarters of a step forward um, and it's going to be interesting to see how that whether that balance resettles itself once we once we get there uh, and again honestly I think Aprilia everyone's looking forward to seeing whether the performance at Aprilia uh, is real. Um, Aprilia had the advantage of having a couple of extra days uh, during the shakedown test at Sepang uh, at ahead of the official test. And uh, they, you know, they arrive in Qatar along with everyone else. Uh, hopefully they'll have a, so, some more bits because they, they literally only had two engines. Uh, and two bikes at that uh, at that test. So, uh, yeah, it's going to be a real proof of uh, a real demonstration of what that bike is like because it looks really good. Yeah, and we'll talk a little bit about each of those manufacturers as the show goes on. But David, one question to you as well. Obviously, we saw the new Michelin tire rolled out in Malaysia. It was test throughout last year as well. But this was where Michelin were really making it clear just what kind of tire we can expect for next year. Do you think are we going to see something similar in Qatar as we saw in Sepang where? Riders immediately were able to find a lot of lap time just because of that new rear tire. Uh, yes, I think so. Definitely. Um, the difference at Qatar is it's also going to depend on how much uh, use the track has had recently. Because I mean, it's, obviously, Qatar is a weird track because it's um, and out there in the desert, it gets a lot of dust over it uh, uh, unless it gets used a lot. Um, so it usually takes a little while to uh, actually sort of clean up. Uh, and there's no one out there sort of cleaning up for uh, uh, cleaning up first so that is um uh, that's going to be interesting to see that's going to be it's also going to be interesting to see how the tire actually how that sort of dirt and dust affects tire wear because that was the one thing which all the riders said was uh yeah this tire's got loads more grip um but we don't know how it's 
how it's going to behave when it wears. It seemed to be better um, when they were sort of being heat cycled, when they were taken off the bike and put into the uh, put into the tire warmers. Normally, when you do that, I think um, uh, normally when you do that, you get a drop in the tire. The the, the performance of the, of the tire drops a little bit. And that it seems to do have dropped l- less this year. So that seems to be one aspect which is uh, better. The tyre wear was better, but uh, Qatar's a, an abrasive track and with a lot of dust on it, it can really, really rip the tyre up. So it'll be, it's going to be interesting to see. And again, we're going to have to, the, 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 all of the manufacturers have got to work a little bit on the, on the bike balance because they've got a bit more rear grip, which means they've got to play around with the, with the balance of the bike to get the most out of it. Yeah, and uh, we talked earlier on about Suzuki. You were saying just their performance where they've made a big step forward. Just uh, one of the news stories we saw this week on Motorsport Network was from Oriel, and he was writing that it looks like Suzuki's going to retain Mir and Rins. Like, if that does come to be the case, and Oriel's generally been pretty much on the ball for any of this kind of stuff over the last couple of years, but if that does pass, do you think... Um, Suzuki then have that really strong foundation to be aggressive through this year, knowing that they've got their riders lined up, they've got a good bike, and after winning two races next year, that they're in a position then to make that big step forward. I th- yeah, I mean, I would say even that they they're almost obliged to you uh, to to make that big step forward, because, precisely because they did win t- uh, two races last year. They it, it helps a lot once you've got everything sort of settled and uh, settled and sorted out. It always felt like Alex Rins was uh, sort of pretty well tied into Suzuki. Um, uh, Juan Mir, there were a lot of rumours, especially in Spain, that Ducati had their eye on Juan Mir. Um, again, Ducati seemed to be determined to try and sort of steal someone else's talent instead of relying on uh, on the obvious talent they have in uh, in house. Uh, but yeah, if they if if they can wrap everything up either before the start of the Qatar round or you know after one or two races, then that will give them an enormous amount of stability. And and the bike, honestly, the, the bike seems to have a little bit more of uh, of exactly what it was missing last year it seems to have uh, just that little bit more power which is the difference between um you know sort of fighting for podiums and fighting for wins um and it also seems to be uh, the thing that impressed me most was the fact that it was making uh, it was capable of a fast lap last year it wasn't capable of a fast lap so to me that was a uh, that was that was quite a big thing yeah, I'm quite keen to see what Mir does as well this year, just because last year, as the season went on, particularly after his crash in Brno, he actually came back very strong and looked like he was ready to make that big step forward. And those final rounds of the year looked really strong. So I think now is the time for him really to step up because year two, he's up against Alex Rins. Rins has shown himself to be a very good MotoGP rider, but an inconsistent MotoGP rider as well. So I think for Mir, this is a real chance for him to separate himself out from a known commodity like Rins, a Grand Prix winner who's been able to show what he can do at the front of the field. But if Mir is able to really make that step in the early rounds in particular, he does mark himself out as one of those real common men for the future. Yeah, and there's a real sense of, of, of you know, niggle in that garage. Then there's not... Um you know they're not happy teammates. They are. It's not that they hate each other. It's just that you know they. It's quite clearly that uh, that the beating the other one is really really important. I think Juan Mir feels a little bit um, sort of ignored and overrated, and uh, Alex Rins feels like who is this young usurper who's come along to take my place. 
So I think that's that's a really good motivator as well. They're both, they're going to be fighting really well, and it really looks like uh, like Juan Mira's. Um, has made a bit of a, a bit of a step this year, and this is going to be his year um, of, to to really make a breakthrough. And uh, David Abrivio was pretty clear about what he expected from Rins, which is you know he won two races last year, so he's got to win more than two races this year. So uh, yeah, pressure is pressure is definitely on there, but the, it looks like they've got the goods to actually deliver it. Yeah, there's always going to be pressure in any factory team. But I think for Suzuki, especially this year, as you said, David, after winning races last year, now they both need to really kick on. And I think one of the big things that everyone in the paddock's really interested to see is just how some of the other manufacturers kick on. We talked briefly there about Aprilia, and that looks like the team that's going to be able to make the biggest step forward. But now that you've had you know a week since coming back from Sepang, what do you actually think about what you saw in Malaysia? We've seen Aprilia in the past use low fuel, fresh tires, go out and try and set a fast lap time just to show the potential of the bike. But this was a test where they actually went out with elation. They did, you know, 12, 13 lap runs and he was fast and consistent all the way through. So for the first time in a long time, they actually look like they're a legitimate MotoGP team. Yeah, I mean, for me, the question about the Aprilia is not, is it fast? It's really obviously fast, especially when you look at Alesha's race run. Uh, Those were proper, proper times. The question is, will it, um, you know, will they make it through 20 laps without something going pop? Because that's always been their biggest, you know, the, that's been their biggest issue and that's their biggest fear. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's the biggest challenge they face. I think everyone, the, the end, everyone was very, very happy about the way that the, uh, the, the test went. Um, but they were also, especially I interviewed, um, Romano Albesiano, which is, will be up on the site at some point um, uh, in the next week or so. And he was um, very happy, but also quite realistic. You know, it outperformed their expectations, but uh, there were, you know, that just because you outperform pay expectations at a test doesn't mean you can actually, uh, it doesn't, doesn't mean you've got one, uh, one hand on the title. Yeah, that's good because there were times in the past where Aleish would put in, you know, a fresh tire in FP4 and do really well and then suddenly Aprilia thought like oh we can win this race because this is the session where everyone shows their race pace but they weren't obviously showing their race pace at all they were just showing that one fast lap so maybe year two with the new infrastructure and the new structure for the team maybe this is when they do start to see some of those good positive results as well yeah I mean what was really interesting is um, uh, obviously when you are interviewing uh, people at tests and at flyaways they, they now have the facilities to actually sort of you know uh, host you you're not sort of tucked away in an office somewhere uh, you're not uh, escorted to uh, into a hospitality it's uh, it's you know sit down in an office and i was there with albaciano and massimo rivello was also sitting at the table uh, just working and occasionally when i asked questions uh, albaciano was oh you can't ask me you'll have to ask uh, you'll have to ask him so this is Clearly, it, to me, it was really much more about okay. There is a there's a much clearer division of responsibilities. Um, uh, Albaciano has been allowed to just focus on the bike because that's what he's good at. Um, uh, Rivola has been handling the organisational uh, side. They've got a lot more resources. Uh, that's made a big difference. They've got you know engineering resources, the, the, everything. They've got uh, a, a bit more money. They, they've got. That little, they've got all the bits which were missing. They're better organised, but I think, uh, and to me, that that's the biggest 
thing. The fact that they are better organized and uh, uh, better able to actually, um, uh, yeah, they have more of a chance of actually achieving what they wanted to. Dave, this leads us into a question from Mike Gregory, one of one of our listeners. And Mike was asking what happens about engine specs and being able to homologate an engine spec. Obviously for Aprilia, they've made a big change for this year with their bike. But Mike's wondering, how does it work for teams with regards to the engine specs? What happens if one rider prefers one spec to another? Do manufacturers have to have the same spec for both riders or is is your engine allocation just homologated based on the rider? Uh, there are different rules for factories and for teams. So uh, within a factory team, uh, both riders have to be on the same spec of engine. What that means in practice is that um, over the course of uh, the over the course of testing, they have to settle on uh, on an engine spec. So, for example, in the case of Yamaha, uh, uh, Yamaha bought one engine spec to the Brno test, and then they bought another engine spec to uh, the, the the Misano test, which was sort of you know in the middle of last year. Uh, and then um, they had uh, another engine uh, spec which they took to Valencia and um, uh, Jerez, and uh, basically there the factory riders went backwards and forwards between the two different sort of concepts of, of engine that they could choose between and had to make a choice by the end of it based on their that input and uh, what the engineers saw on the data. They decided to go with this new engine, which Yamaha have built. Uh, and so it means that both um, Vinales and Rossi will start at Qatar with the same engine spec. Um, and... So will uh, Fabio Quartararo, but because Quartararo is in a satellite team, um, Franco Morbidelli will be on a different engine spec because satellite teams are allowed to have two different engine specs. And it's the same with LCR, for example. You've got uh, Cal Crutchlow's on the 2020 bike and um, uh, Takanakagami, who's on the 2019 bike. Um, basically, the uh, the idea is that you know a factory team is a factory team, and they uh, and they should have one spec of engine to uh, to work with and. Um, Satellite teams don't have the necessarily have the money or the resources to supply both riders uh, to to the same level, and so they can they can have slightly different uh, specs. As a rule, both uh, the the you know the teams use the same spec of engine, but um, uh, it's only in the factory teams that it's compulsory that both side uh, both have a have the same engine. Okay, that's perfect, Dave. And just uh, moving on from Aprilia to another manufacturer, KTM. What did you make of them in? in Malaysia and what's the big thing for them to be able to prove in uh, the next test in Qatar? Uh, well, they have to prove that their, their bike works as well in uh, Qatar as it did in Sepang because, uh, you know, Danny Pedrosa ended up third on the timesheets on the, um, uh, uh, I think on the second day on that bike. So it's clear that that bike is, is very competitive. They've made a big step forward. Uh, the engine is smoother. Um, the chassis is, uh, the chassis is lighter, so it's easier to 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 flick from side to side. Um, again, at the moment, it's only really Paulus Bargaro and Danny Pedrosa who are doing the testing. Um, uh, they will be uh, focusing on on that. It's also going to be interesting to see how, uh, again, because the the track at, uh, at Qatar is more is more abrasive, to see uh, uh, tire management. I think that's going to be m- much more important there. Uh, and 
it'll also be interesting to see how much more work Miguel Oliveira gets because obviously he's coming back from uh, from shoulder surgery as well. But apart from that, they've got two uh, they've got two rookies, and that means uh, yeah, Brad Binder is making real progress, but it's you know step by step. He's still not ready to be you know to to actually lead any form of development process. He's still in the in the process of understanding how to ride a MotoGP bike. Okay, we've got a question in about KTM as well, David, from Anthony, and he's wondering, would KTM ever switch to Olens from their WP suspension? And also, would they be able to run them both in a back-to-back private test, just be able to see what works, what doesn't work with each type of suspension? Um, to answer, to come to the second question first, I would bet money that they have run uh, Olens in a private test just to see how it works and just to see... Um, uh, where they're missing out. Would they ever race on them? Absolutely not. They, I mean, if KTM own WP. So why would they, why would they actually do it? And they go racing to develop this. Uh, the WP suspension is not that far off. Um, uh, I think at the beginning of last year. So this was still, you know, earlier in the, in, in the development process than it is now. Um, they were saying that basically, the riders were saying that basically the, the forks are, you know, the, the, the WP forks are as good as the Olin forks. The problem was more at the rear, at the shock. The shock wasn't quite as responsive as the, uh, uh, as the Olin shock. Um, that's something, I mean, that's why you go racing to figure that out, to get it to, uh, to get more development out of it. And, um, they're going to get a little bit closer. Yeah, and I know from when WP are testing, they basically have a couple of different bikes. They use, I think, an R1 and a couple of other super bikes, and they basically just have an Olin's front end, a WP rear end, and vice versa, and they just try and work their way around, trying to make sure that they're able to get it into that right working window. So they've got a couple of different ways to try and do that. But Dave, when we look at KTM, you mentioned Brad Binder there. Obviously, from what we saw in Moto2 and indeed in Moto3 from, from Binder, we know what he can do and we saw how aggressive he was with the Moto2 bike. What did you think of him when you saw him out on track in Malaysia? Does he look like he's been able to just ramp up that aggression with the bike and manhandle it the same way that we saw Paul Espargaro do in the past? Uh, oh, well, I, I was spending more time in pit lane than actually out track side because there was a lot more to see in pit lane uh, 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 the, this year. But um, uh, I mean, from from the reports I've had, from people who have gone out and watched him, they they do say he's really um, uh, he is sort of not quite Paulus Bargro style. He's a little bit he's a little bit smoother than Paulus Bargro style, but he, he can still actually you know push the bike and force the bike. And he's probably more or less where they need to be. Um, someone um, compared him between uh, like Danny Pedrosa, uh, who's incredibly smooth, and Paulus Bargro. And it was sort of, you know, about three quarters towards Polis Bargaro. Um, so yeah, I think he's got, he's definitely got the style to actually use the bike uh, and, and to push the bike. And it's going to be interesting to see, uh, how he goes. I think he's going to be, he's going to be one of those riders who at the start of the season you feel is a little bit disappointing. And then all of a sudden, by the time you get to the, the middle of the season, you're starting to think, hang on, wait a minute. He's, you know, top seven all the time. This is really starting to be quite impressive. Yeah, and that's the one thing that we saw with Binder over the last few years, just always being able to find a way just to make things work. And that's through really bad injuries that he's had and different different things. So he's always found a way mid-season to really get his head around any new bike. And definitely, I think he's one of the riders that could do that. If KTM have made that bit of a step forward as well, 
the work from Pedroza making a big difference. Maybe that'll be the, the key thing for him. But uh, when you look at KTM in Qatar, Dave, what's the one thing that you're really going to be keeping an eye out for? Neil's going to be out in the test as well for uh, the MotoGP test in Qatar. But what's the one thing that you're going to be looking out for when you're looking through timing screens or listening to any of the debriefs? Yeah, I mean, the, I think the most important thing is just uh, the engine response and whether the engine response is... Um, uh, uh, basically, rideability, just how easy it is to ride. Uh, the, the, the power delivery has been a little bit of a sort of a question mark for the KTM from time to time. It's something they've worked on, especially with the electronics. Um, uh, and like I said, with the cooler air there, it makes the engine more aggressive. It means you have to be, uh, you have to be a little bit more precise with your electronics to get to, to control it and manage it. So that's, for me, that's going to be, what I'll be listening into is to, to hear what the riders have to say about, um, the, you know, about the way that the engine is behaving. All right. So we'll move on from KTM, David, to Honda. We mentioned earlier on about Marquez's shoulder. Obviously there was a, quite a few reports online about him needing surgery and delaying the start of the season. Obviously, that's all been rubbish by Honda. They've said that there's nothing to that. But for Mark going to Qatar, it's another test for him. It's another opportunity to see how his shoulder reacts. And the one thing from the first test in uh, Sepang was that we saw that he went out the first day and the plan was always do 20, 25 laps the next day, ramp that up the third day, ramp it up again. And you'd expect in Qatar, it'll be a similar sort of scenario for him, maybe with just more miles from those initial days. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the the, the thing that he complained about at uh, uh, Sepang was a lack of strength. Um, the shoulder was less painful than last time, but it was less strong because it seems, it appears that um, uh, during surgery, I mean, you know, surgery on a, on something like a shoulder, which is a massive and very, very complicated uh, uh, joint, um, you can quite easily just nick some of the smaller nerves. And it seems that they, uh, during surgery, they, they touched one of the smaller nerves. Uh, and that, um, had meant he lost strength in his, um, uh, it was one of the, uh, one of the nerves which controls the, the, the deltoid muscles. And that means that he's lost, uh, he's lost strength in his deltoid muscles. So that's basically the, 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 the shoulder, the, the muscle on the, on the top of your shoulder. If you touch the upper part of your shoulder, that's the muscle that you're, that you're working on. It does a lot of lifting and, uh, uh, and that sort of thing. The, uh, if you're doing a press up, then that's what, uh, the, the, those are the muscles which you're using. Um, that is, is very important. It was, Telling that um, Marquez had a couple of crashes in uh, in Sepang because um, he lost the front and he couldn't save it on his elbow. There were the kind of crashes where he was trying to carry, where normally he would just carry it on his shoulder, uh, on his uh, on his elbow, and then just flip it uh, flip it up onto the tires once once he'd scrubbed off enough speed. Um, and he wasn't able to do that. Uh, I think that is uh, telling a sign of. You know, a lack of strength in his shoulder. Uh, it's also slightly worrying in the fact that, you know, it, it tells you where the bike is. The bike is the same, really, really fast and with a really, really sketchy front end feel. Marcus was saying uh, again that they were having problems with the engine braking. Uh, the engine braking reacts really aggressively and that, that makes it, that can tend to sort of like push the bike forward into, uh, into a corner, um, uh, as you're braking. And uh, that can cause you to lose the, lose the front end, especially with the, you know, with more grip from the, uh, from the rear. So it's, uh, it's 
I think Honda are in a bit of a tricky uh, situation. At least Cal Crutchlow um, was fit. Um, he did quite well. He had, you know, he was he was fast. That was um, uh, that was promising. So the bike is obviously sort of fast and competitive. But it, it, again, it's going to be Cal was complaining about you know the bike is difficult to ride. Um, it's hard to it doesn't have that front end feeling that he had in the from the 2018 bike. Um, so he doesn't have the same sort of faith in the front end. So that's basically Honda are in a very similar situation in 2020 as they were in uh, 2019. And we have to wait and see how uh, Marquez's shoulder develops. And just for you, David, as well, then obviously after Malaysia, it was the first time we really got the chance to see Alex Marquez in the Repsol colours, given everything that we saw in the Valencia test and the Jerez test, all the hoopla about who was going to get the ride, him getting the ride. What did you make of him during the Malaysian test? Do you think, did he look comfortable? Do you think, did he look... Did he look ready to step up inside the team? Alex Marquez looked really good. Um, I mean, the thing you have to remember, well, the thing you have to try to do with Alex Marquez is, is forget that his name is Alex Marquez uh, and just look at what he what he's actually doing. Um, I think if he, as a rookie coming into, into the Repsol Honda team, where it's obviously a lot of pressure, he was actually, he did really quite well. Um, uh, he was fast and he was consistent and he was, he seemed to be adapting quite quickly. When you act, one of the things that really surprises me is when you see him, he's huge. He is absolutely massive. You know, well, for a motorcycle racer, that is, he is considerably taller than his brother. Um, and that sort of gives you an idea of, you know, how different they are. He seemed to, he also, he handled the press well. He handled the pressure well. He handled, he handled everything around him well. Um, Honestly, I didn't. Honestly, he did. He did much better than I thought. I was expecting him to. Uh, you know, I didn't think he would be do particularly well, and he's shown me up as an idiot, um, which uh, many motorcycle racers have managed to successfully do. Um, so yeah, he's definitely. Uh, he's he's definitely in in a good shape. He's definitely proving his worth i think he i think he's showing that he i mean he, he des- absolutely deserves a seat in moto gp or coming away from sepang my thought was he absolutely deserves a seat in moto gp does he deserve a repsol honda seat i don't know um but who does deserve a repsol honda seat um who else do you put on the bike it's not a um you know it's it's not a terrible choice it's um uh and it looks like there is plenty of potential there so we'll see it was uh, I, I was impressed that's good. And uh, one question as well, David, and from Neil Brown. And Neil is asking us a question about Ducati, but it kind of links in nicely to that. You said like about Marquez, who else would you have put on that seat? That's one of the big questions that's going to come up for Ducati down the line. And that's what Neil's asking about. He's he's talking about with everyone nailing down their riders for next year, where do you think Ducati will find their next title challenger from? And he's asking also whether or not Scott Redding would be in contention for that or if there's a Moto2 rider that we should be keeping our eyes on for that seat. Well, I mean, you could probably ask uh, answer the question about Scott Redden better than I can because you probably spoke to him more recently than I did. Um, I haven't. I mean, I haven't heard very much about him. Um, but then again, uh, I think there was was it yesterday or the day before there was the Aruba it uh, Aruba it Ducati World uh, World Superbike um, uh, launch and. 
there was some news coming out of there that, yeah, maybe if he wins the cha- if Scott wins the championship, he could come to to MotoGP. Um, there are there any riders to watch in Moto? Yeah, all of them, I reckon. There's 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 lots of them, and there's Ducati really do seem. Um, I mean, the one thing about Ducati is they're always looking for you know the rider who's going to solve their problems, but because of that they seem to overlook the riders they already have. Uh, you know, Jack Miller seems to have made progress as well. If there's, if anyone's going to win a championship for them, you would think that it would be Jack Miller. Jack Miller really seems to have made progress. Yeah, I have to agree with that. I think for Ducati to find a rider, Miller's the one that makes sense. I myself don't really subscribe to this view that Davi should be dropped. It seems to be very prevalent in a lot of, in a lot of outlets. But the one thing for me is he's the only rider that's consistently been able to win races, challenge Marquez. He's finished second in the world championship a few times. So he's done a really good job. I think to drop him, unless you're able to bring in Marquez, I don't understand where the talk really comes from for that. Well, the, the talk comes from the fact that they, that the relationship between Gigi Linea and, uh, Andrei Dovicioso is uh, at an absolute, uh, nadir. It's, um, they, you know, they, they, they don't speak. They don't get on. It's almost as if, uh, Delinia believes that if it wasn't for Dovicioso, um, they would have a title already. The bike is, uh, the bike is fast enough. Um, Dovicioso also believes that if he had a bike, this bike, which turned, he would also be a champion. Uh, so there's a lot of, um, yeah, there's a lot of sort of, there's not a good working relationship there. Um, Ducati have historically not been fantastic at rider management, shall we say? Uh, the, uh, what happened to Casey Stoner? What happens to, uh, Jorge Lorenzo? Even what happened with, with, with Valentina Rossi? They're, they're, just not been able to manage that sort of thing. They keep on looking for a silver bullet, and um, uh, I think it's it's really really hard to find a, 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 silver, a silver bullet to to try to fix this problem. I think. Yeah, I think that's a very fair point. I, I myself think it's going to be interesting to see what happens with Pramac seats for next year, and indeed the Avintia seat. Avintia obviously using last year's bike in uh, in MotoGP this year, and they've got Johan Zarco there, so. You know, it's going to be really interesting to see how those seats play out for me more so than the factory seats, because I think Miller's pretty much nailed on for one when you talk to people in and around the paddock. Um, and then, as I said, like Dovey's done a really good job. So it'd be a risk to make a wholesale change and get rid of both riders. So for me, Miller and Dovey definitely are two leaders in the clubhouse for that. And then you've got riders coming through from Moto2 to go on to an Avintia seat, go to a Pramac seat. Bagnaia is going to make a step forward this year, you'd have to imagine. So I think, you know, the future is a little bit rosier for Ducati than it appears. And I think they need to just sort of, as you said, David, stop looking for that one rider that can cure everything. Well, this is it. I mean, because the the other thing is because they made this almost sort of semi-public uh, courting of um, anyone anyone available, uh, you know, um, Maverick Vinales, uh, Fabio Quartararo, perhaps Juan Mir, um, just um, lots of people who were interested in in these riders. This is it doesn't sort of um, exactly imbue a lot of uh, uh, trust in. It doesn't imbue a lot of confidence in in their own riders. It doesn't. It doesn't sort of make their make their riders feel wanted and loved. 
And that, I think, is always going to be very, very disruptive. Um, at the launch, the uh, uh, Dominicali and and uh, Delinia were both talking about, you know, it's good for it's it's good to sign riders late because it uh, it puts a bit of pressure on them, and that can uh, uh, and that can uh, that can help, that can stimulate them a little bit, that can motivate them. Um, but I mean, you have to. To me, you have to have you. I mean, you see the difference with uh, with Maverick Vinales. Vinales now believes that you know his team is completely behind him, and uh, and he's made a massive step forward. So yeah, that that I think is one of the things which is missing in uh, in Ducati. And uh, before we get to a question that I have for you, Dave, we've got one last question in from Dan O'Photo. And uh, Dan's a little bit worried and he's wondering what the chances are that the tie round of MotoGP will be cancelled this year, given the coronavirus outbreak. And he's also saying, shouldn't they just put it back to October like it was before, just to avoid losing a race during the season? David, you wrote about this for your blog. uh, uh, You wrote a blog post about this, but... um, What's your thoughts on the Thai Grand Prix? Uh, well, at the moment, there are, uh, well, hang on one minute. I think I read about this on Friday and there were something like 33 uh, cases of the coronavirus in, Thai, uh, in Thailand. Uh, but there were 16 in, in France. So does that mean we're all, we, you know, we can't afford to go to, to, to Le Mans because it might be dangerous? This is, it's such a fast developing situation that I don't think you can actually say anything sensible about it other than that it's something which is being monitored china you have to say that china um have done quite well in in managing and controlling the spread of the virus i was reading somewhere there's they have something like 750 million people with restricted movement in china which when you think about it is absolutely astonishing are you um, a man with restrictive movement as well david or is that just old age getting you no, no, no. That's it's. Uh, I uh, I make sure to eat, eat enough fibre, uh, uh, Steve. So uh, I don't have to worry about restricted movement. Um, but yeah, it's. Uh, um, if the situation stays as it is, if then I don't see the uh, you know the the Thai Grand Prix being being changed. I um, uh, emailed Mike Trimby about this a few weeks ago, and he said, you know, we're not experts. We're waiting for the for the WHO. Uh, and for national countries, basically, if uh, Spain or Italy or the UK or another one of the uh, European countries starts advising against uh, travel to Thailand, then the Thai GP will be uh, uh, will be postponed. But it doesn't look like uh, they're going to postpone it. It looks like uh, you know, you know, that so far there are no travel restrictions. So I think it will happen, but uh, you know we're still what four weeks away, four or five weeks away from it. So anything can happen. It, 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 lots of things could happen in the intervening period. We might get, uh, we might have an, uh, an asteroid smash into the Earth and destroy all uh, all known life. So uh, that's yeah, the positivity that, was... that you're known for, Dave. <laughs> that's right. Always on the bright side. Always on the bright side. Fingers crossed. I know for us in World Superbikes, we were all given a directive or instructions on how to manage ourselves when we're traveling. And it's mostly just the stuff that I think most people know already, you know, make sure that you're using hand sanitizers, make sure that you're just looking after yourself as much as anything else. Common sense to a large degree being the key thing. And as you said, David, there's been so few cases in Thailand that, and particularly where the cases have been, they haven't been anywhere near Buriram. They've been down in the South coast and the islands and things like that. So it'd be 
a development that would need to happen for Thailand to suddenly be overrun by the virus, you'd imagine. But uh, I know that there was talk that before we go to Qatar, there'll be a definitive decision made as to you know what the plan is for the Thai Grand Prix. But as it stands right now, it doesn't really seem that there's too much of a risk for it. But Dave, I've got one last question for you about MotoGP. So what's that, Steve? Valentino Rossi's just turned 41. And yes. for for me, his biggest achievement is, and it's a lot like with Serena Williams, where you just managed to outlive all of your rivals. You've managed to just churn through generations of riders for Valentino Rossi. Williams has gone through probably four generations of opponents and Rossi's doing the same. And that's his best achievement. I think everyone looks at the nine championships and it, for most people now, it does pale a little bit in comparison to just being able to keep going at his age. But when you look back at Rossi's career since 96, what's the one big standout memory that you have for that? Well, my standout memory is probably the same as everyone else's standout memory, and that would be welcome in 2004 uh, when he you know, jumped on the Yamaha, won the first race and got off the bike and gave it a big kiss. That, that to me was... That was truly the mark of greatness. Um, sort of in that era, uh, in that era, all that winning that he did was def- was was a proof of just how good he was up against the riders he was up against. I remember um, interviewing Gilles Bigot, uh, who was a, uh, a, a, a long-time crew chief in MotoGP, and he was saying that when he first saw uh, Valentino Rossi on the four strokes. Um, he noticed that Rossi was adapting his riding style immediately, whereas a lot of the other riders were trying to ride the four-stroke like a two-stroke. Um, and that adaptability is what sort of made him um, almost dominate those early years of the, of the four-stroke uh, four-stroke era. Uh, I think that adaptability is what has carried him through. But, you know, like you, I think his – I mean – Valentino Rossi's greatest legacy is always going to be raising the profile of the sport, making the sport so incredibly popular, um, uh, because he is much, much bigger than uh, than the sport. But I think as a as a motorcycle racer, my what has impressed me most is, as you say, the fact that he um, can still find the motivation to work so hard to be competitive, because he is competitive. Uh, what is he? Finished fifth, I think, uh, uh, in Spain. He he is still competitive at this age and that is remarkable it'd be inter- it'd be interesting to know if he could still be competitive if um or if he if he would have lasted so long if we'd have been racing 20 races a year since 2000 or um if he'd have spent his career on a honda um uh, or on a ducati for example whether that would have made a uh, would have that made a difference? The, the MR is you, you know easier to ride, uh, so yeah. But you know the fact that he's still racing is amazing. Yeah, I always the find fact it. he's still racing competitively is amazing. Yeah, for me, I always find it really interesting when you talk to riders about him, and obviously for a lot of riders, they grew up as big Rossi fans, and you know any time that. You know they're in a battle with them. They still talk about, wow, it's Valentino Rossi. But I always find it interesting when you ask riders what they think of who Yamaha should put on the bike. This year was the first time where there was legitimately, you know, they should be moving him aside. But it was still always as long as he stays in MotoGP because they know that he still warrants 
one of the top 10 bikes on the grid. You know, he's still better than all but a handful of riders in the world, even at this age. So it's still just that level of competitiveness, as you said, David, that really does make him stand out. And that's why I think the Williams comparison is probably one of the more apt ones because every time she goes out on course, she's expected to win. Rossi may not be expected to go out and, and win MotoGPs, but he's expected to go out and still be able to finish inside the top five, still be able to finish you know, inside the top five in a world championship and things like that. And I think just being able to do that at 41 when you're up against you know, the riders that are coming through, and it's only going to get harder you know, when th- this next batch of Moto2 riders come through or indeed the likes of Bagnaya and Morbidelli and Mir and whoever else just makes that next step to have a bit more consistency or find a little bit more potential that's suddenly where it gets harder and harder for Rossi. Yeah, I mean, it's also in, sort of interesting to think about that generation coming through because Fabio Quartararo came into MotoGP um, uh, with the objective of beating Mark Marquez, not of beating Valentino Rossi. Valentino Rossi is one of the riders he has to beat on the way to beating Mark Marquez. So Rossi is sort of, he's lost that position of being the man to beat. Um but yeah, you said that Rossi lines up on the grid with the expectation. I mean, you expect Rossi to be able to get on the podium. You expect him to win races. Uh, you don't expect, necessarily expect him to be able to win a championship. But then, you know, so far, unless your ma, your name your, uh, rhymes with Kark Karkes, the chances of you winning a MotoGP title are relatively limited. Yeah, and I think uh, that's one of the big things that I've seen as a shift since I came into MotoGP because I remember first race I went to was Silverstone in 2011 and it was right in the middle of that terrible start to Ducati when Rossi was trying to figure a way out of Ducati and uh, then obviously the second year he's still on that bike and by the time that he won a race for Ducati or for Yamaha in 2013 you thought like, wow, I've been at Rossi's, you know, this is probably the last time he'll ever win. And then by the time we went into 2014 and 2015, he was winning regularly again. And if he was to win a race this year, I don't think anyone would be amazed that he's won a race. You know, and you wouldn't think, oh, he'll never win another one. You'd suddenly think, oh, well, well, he's back to winning. He can easily win another couple of races because it is that competitive in MotoGP that it's hard to win. But if you have the ability to get to the front, you can still win a lot of races. We saw that in Sepang whenever the times were as close as they were. I think it was 17 riders in the test all separated by a second. So you don't need to find a huge amount to be able to stay at the front or get to the front. It's just being able to tie it all up, line it all up and get it done on every given weekend. Yeah, and the Yamaha is better than it has been for the past few years. So uh, this year, maybe next year, are probably his best uh, his best opportunities to actually win again. Yamaha are tired of being humiliated by Honda. You know, they're tired of of not winning championships. Uh, so uh, they are throwing everything and the kitchen sink at it. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how it all goes. Obviously, I said that uh, Neil's not here with us today to record. He's going to be down in the. Moto2 test at Jerez and then obviously he'll be on a plane to get to Qatar for uh, the MotoGP test as well. Dave, you've got uh, no trips planned between now and uh, the opening rounds of the year in Qatar? And, and no, only um, uh, there is the uh, uh, the Dutch motorcycle uh, motorcycle show in uh, Utrecht uh, later this week, and that's that's my only trip 
Um, uh, I actually want to go out on the motorbike, but it's uh, it's been raining and storming, and uh, we've got uh, we've had Storm Kiara over. We've now we've got uh, Storm uh, Storm Dennis going over us, so um, it's not really motorbike riding weather. Yeah, Storm Kiara, um, by the way, there, David. The, it wasn't oh, the Italians sorry, well, that named us. <laughs> That's right. I've been spending too many times with it, too many times with Italians. Uh, your travel, because um, time to turn to World Superbikes. Probably you, uh, you're on a you're on a flight sort of uh, next week sometime. Yeah, well, this show will be going out on Thursday, and by the time this drops, I'll be on a plane halfway to Doha and uh, getting ready for the first leg of the season obviously down to Phillip Island and I get there Friday get a couple of days to try and get over the jet lag and enjoy the sunshine as you said David the storms here the last couple of weeks they've sort of taken the shine off of Europe so it'll be nice to get down to Australia and get into the sun good weather and uh, then two days of testing and then the opening race of the year so I think it's going to be exciting I'm really looking forward to this year I think this could be a really good year of world superbikes and obviously enough Phillip Island's always an interesting race, but it's also the race that most people end up watching as well. You get a lot of MotoGP fans that will watch that race. That could be the only superbike race they watch all year. But I think that they could be surprised by what they see this year because I think it could be really close. We could have, I think we could have nine different winners this year, you know, which is very different to what we've had in recent years. And I think, you know, lots of different bikes look competitive. So it should be a really good year. Um, obviously, we've had uh, the we've had some testing in Europe at uh, uh, Portimao and Jerez. Uh, now everyone's heading down to uh, Philip Island. Obviously, Philip Island is not really a very good test track because it's you know what you're really testing at Philip Island is uh, testicular fortitude rather than uh, uh, you know horsepower and handling. Um, but what are you looking? to see from the uh, from the tests in in Phillip Island from the World Superbike test in Phillip Island. Well, I myself am testing a new sun cream because I am incredibly likely to get burned. So I've just got lots of different sun creams to try out. So, you know, there's a lot that can be used for these uh, two days of testing just to make sure that you find the right settings, just to be able to make sure that uh, you're able to be at your best all the way through the season. So that's what my goal is, just to be able to make sure I don't get burned. But uh, as far as what we see on track, it's going to be interesting to see how Honda do. Because this time last year, we were getting ready to go down to Phillip Island, not knowing what to expect from Bautista. Um, he had struggled a little bit in testing. He didn't have the right feel for the bike. His lap times were still good, but he he was complaining a lot. He wasn't happy with the bike. And suddenly we went down to Phillip Island. They changed the settings and suddenly everything changed for him. And you know he came alive on the bike, won the first 11 races of the year. And I think it's going to be interesting to see if you know they can suddenly make that big step forward for round one again with the Honda because Bautista's struggled all the way through the winter tests. He's been slower than Leon Haslam. He hasn't looked comfortable on the bike, hasn't looked confident. When you talk to riders that were following him out on track, they all said the same thing, that he just didn't look comfortable out there. So he needs to make a big step forward in the two days of testing. But he can make that step forward as well, and that's what's going to be interesting. I think if the Honda can find that little bit more potential or a, a little bit more comfort for the riders, then suddenly they can be right there as well because they've got really strong engine, electronics are good, and you know Honda generally have a pretty sorted chassis with the fire blades. So they should have all the all the ingredients to have a really good year. 
Yeah, I mean, we've seen sort of in previous years that uh, uh, HRC have turned up and, uh, well, they've made a lot of noise about uh, uh, about running the World Superbike program, but it never really sort of turned into results. Does it look like things could be a little bit different? Well, when you look at last year, we all thought that that was going to be a HRC effort. And then suddenly when you compare it to what we've seen in the winter test this year, so that suddenly you can see, no, no, this is... This is the full effort. And this is where Honda have gone out and Alberto Pooch has found the right people to hire for different jobs. They've had, you know, all of the head honchos from HRC have been at the tests. So they're making much more of an investment this year. As last year went on, it was pretty clear that they were only using it just for data gathering. They weren't trying to find performance. They weren't trying to win races. They were just trying to make sure that they knew how the bike would react with Pirelli tires, what you know, different changes would make given those tires, different, different parameters, what would happen? And this year is where they can put all those lessons to use. And that's what's going to be interesting to see whether or not they can make that step forward because we all have the expectation that, you know, HRC are there. So suddenly Honda are going to win races again, but you're up against Kawasaki. You're up against Ducati. You're up against Yamaha that are in the fifth year of their project. You're up against BMW that came in with a really strong bike last year. So there's no givens that Honda's immediately going to show up and win races. I think they're going to have to work really hard but I think at some point through the year, they're going to be able to win races. Phillip Island's a good track to start on. Haslam goes very well there. Bautista goes great there. So, you know, they've got a track there that they should be able to hit the ground running on. And that could be a big advantage for them. And the Honda really seems to be a much better bike. Uh, you know, there's all this talk every year about, oh, look, they've updated the uh, the, the Fireblade, but this is genuinely a, a completely new bike. Um uh, with a lot more horsepower, and it seems to be a, a lot more competitive. Um, moving on to, you mentioned Ducati there. Um, obviously, Chaz Davis had a bit of a difficult year last year. It took him a long time to actually sort of, you know, get settled onto the uh, onto the bike. Um, and we have Scott Redding coming uh, uh, coming there. And well, well, what can you say about Scott Redding? He uh, uh, Went to BSB, cleaned up, and um, and deserve, absolutely deserves to be uh, on on the factory bike. He also seems to have adapted relatively quickly to uh, to World Superbikes to the to, to the changes. How do we? I mean, what do you expect from them? Obviously, we saw you know wins straight away last year from from Bautista on the uh, on the Ducati. Are we going to see the same thing again? Yeah, I think well, Scott's a Grand Prix winner. He's been able to contend Grand Prix World Championships. I think the BSB factor can be exaggerated a bit much because BSB showed last year that it's a it was in a, a weak state. You know, there wasn't this great depth of field, there wasn't the level that we've had in previous years. And I think that opened up a bit of a door. You throw in the Ducati, which was far and away the best bike in, in the grid la, on the grid last year, particularly in BSB spec, because the wings make more of a difference in BSB than they do anywhere else. Because without electronics, suddenly those wings become really important for being able to control the wheelie and different things like that. So last year in BSB, all Reading really had to do was beat Josh Brooks. Tommy Bridewell did well through the year, but... I don't think anyone expected Bridewell to be able to contend for the championship, be able to win races when it mattered. He did did do really well during the course of the season, but it was always going to come down to a battle between Brooks and Reading. And then when you factor in that, you know, Assen, Donington 
and brands were the three tracks for the showdown races last year suddenly it meant that you know scott was going to two of his favorite tracks and then another grand prix track in, in brands hatch for the final round so he was in a really strong position to be able to win that championship but he did go out and do it and he did exactly what he had to do and he's given himself an opportunity to get back onto the world stage and now it's up to him to show that he's capable of beating the likes of Ray, beating the likes of Davis and Batista and whoever else you want to put into that list. I think Scott can do that, but I also think that he's going to get stages through the year where he gets a bit of a rude awakening as to the level in world SBK. Yeah, I mean, we had a question from a reader about that from um, uh, uh, Tony Adams. Do you think the electronics are going to be a good advantage for Reading or not? Because obviously... Scott went back to BSB where there's no ele- or very restricted electronics. Coming from a MotoGP background where he had loads of electronics, now he's to to World Superbikes and he's got lots of ex- electronics again. How do you see him uh, adapting to that? Well, the big thing for Scott is, as you said, David, he's got years of MotoGP experience where he had to use electronics. So he knows how they should work. He knows how they should feel. But now he also knows what the bike should feel like as well. He knows naturally what the Ducati wants to do because he's ridden it without the electronics or at least with the BSB Motec spec unit. So he knows what he wants that bike to do. And maybe with the electronics, he'll actually be able to just uh, narrow in on certain areas that he wants to improve a lot on. So I think it'll help him. But I also think it's not going to be the difference maker. Scott Redding's a world-class rider. The big thing for him is going to be showing that he can deal with the pressure of being able to be a title contender week in, week out, because he hasn't really had to do that. I think people will talk about BSB, but winning the BSB championship is very different to winning a world championship. And for Scott, it's all about making sure that he's able to get off to a good start. I think if he can get off to a good start, it means that he's able to just be himself. I think that if things start to go wrong and you know he's you know, still active on social media and all the things that fans like to see from Scott. That's only good if you're winning, you know, and if you're not winning and you're a factory Ducati rider, you know, suddenly the pressure can ramp up from that. And what I found interesting with Scott over the years has always been that he's he's quite sensitive to some of the outside pressure. You know, we saw it in Moto2, we saw it in MotoGP, and it's only in the last wee while that he's he's really taken a lot more comfort in his own skin and sort of said no this is who I am and this is what I'm going to do and that's what's going to be interesting this year to see how he deals with the bad results that come because you're not going to go in and dominate a championship like what you know Bautista was doing at the start of last year I, I can't imagine that happening again and suddenly you have to be the man that wins that championship and Scott's saying a lot of a lot of things that could come back to bite him you know he's saying things like Bautista had both hands in the championship but there was butter on his hand, so he dropped the trophy. He's saying that, you know, he's gone to World Superbikes with only one ambition, and that's to beat Johnny Ray. That's great if you go out and beat Johnny Ray. That's great if you win the World Championship. But if you don't win the World Championship, you've given yourself a rod for people to put on you. Yeah, I mean, speaking of the man to beat in World Superbikes, um, Jonathan Ray looks i mean jonathan ray is you know he's doing the old mark marquez thing basically isn't he he is um uh, winning when he can win and finishing second when he can't um the um the obviously the the kawasaki looks to have been relatively competitive but kawasaki have also been testing uh sort of on their own rather than uh they haven't they haven't been testing 
at all of the same tests as the uh, as the rest of the world superbike field. Um, uh, Alex Lowe's has switched to uh, uh, Kawasaki this year as well. Um, what do you expect? Because obviously Jonathan Ray won't want to be caught out like he was last year at uh, at Philippine. What do you expect from to see from Kawasaki at the test? Well, the one thing about Kawasaki is, and it's been quite interesting, really, to see how they've sort of approached this season. I don't really understand why they didn't test in Portimao with everyone else. When we had all the bad weather, suddenly they decided to up sticks and have one day on their own in Montmelo. And it, I think that particularly with a new rider coming in, they could have done with just making sure that they were able to have that like-for-like comparison. And it'll be interesting to see when we get to Australia whether or not that's a decision that they'll regret. I think that the team know the bike, but they've got a new rider. Alex needs to learn the bike as well. He hasn't had an awful lot of dry weather running. Now, every time that he's gotten off the bike, he's been very positive about it. He's talked about being able to get a better feel from the bike and he's very confident going into the season. But it all comes down to what Johnny can do, really, because a new rider joins a team. I don't think there can really be the expectation that you go in and you're winning races right from the start, even if it's with Kawasaki. So I think all the pressure falls on to Ray to keep winning and all winning runs come to an end. It's hard to keep that level of success going. We all thought that it was going to end last year when Bautista was winning all those races. But suddenly we saw that, you know, Ray is just resilient and he can just keep applying pressure to a rival and he's the one that forced Bautista to crack. So to be able to have that sort of an effort two years in a row, that's a big ask for anyone. But maybe this year is actually going to be easier for him because no one's going to go out and win 11 races in a row. No one's going to go out and dominate from the start of the season and put you under huge amounts of pressure. I think that, you know, as I said, you could have nine or 10 different race winners. The one thing about it is Ray's going to be capable of finishing second and third pretty much every week, whereas those other eight or nine riders aren't going to be capable of doing that. So the big thing is going to be, as you said, David, just being able to finish second when you're not able to win and just keep racking up the points because that's what he's done all the way through the last few years. And it's basically meant that most of his championships have been a foregone conclusion for most of the year. Yeah, I mean, the thing about Jonathan Ray to me is like he's incredibly resilient. He can, uh, uh, he, I think perhaps also from spending a long time on sort of underpowered bikes, he's used to, he's, he's used to sort of, you know, failure, very tough conditions. Um, uh, and so he has the mental strength to keep going and, uh, and keep plugging away, looking in search of, of success. And that definitely carried him through the first part of, uh, of last year where he just kept plugging away, getting second and getting second. And it paid off, uh, it paid off in the end. Uh, and he doesn't look like, Although I haven't sort of spoken to him this year, but he doesn't really look like a man who's lost any motivation. He looks just as motivated as ever. Yeah, I think that that's one of the things that having Lowe's join the team can actually make a big difference because last year, I don't think Ray really had to worry about Haslam for most of the season, other than Phillip Island, Haslam was really strong. But for most of the year, it was pretty clear who the number one in the team was. It was pretty clear that he could help Haslam. He didn't have to fear him. Whereas over the course of this winter, what we've seen is not that it's back to what it was with Sykes and Ray, but last year we had Ray going out and giving Haslam a toe just that he'd be able to get up to speed at different tracks, show him how to ride the Kawasaki. 
I don't think there's been any of that this winter and you wouldn't expect there to be now. So I think that it's going to be interesting to see how the dynamics within the team work because, you know, Lowe's comes in, he's third in the world last year, he's won a world superbike race, he wants to win more and I don't think he's going to mind too much if there's tension in that team. I think he's going to be able to focus up on what he has to do. He's got experience of having had Vandermark as a teammate, so he knows what it's like to be beaten by your teammate and to go through a run where your teammate's in the ascendancy. So I think he'll be quite comfortable going into Kawasaki. But it'll be interesting to see what happens if, you know, two weekends in a row, Lowe's is ahead of Ray and things like that. So I'm quite keen to see how that dynamic sort of evolves through the season because through the winter they've both said all the right things they've both been talking in terms of you know we're working together he's a nice guy we get along well and and it'll be interesting to see if that's still the case by the time we get to the final rounds of the year in Argentina um, yeah, we've got a question about uh, the Kawasaki and, uh, and the, the Ducati and, and about sort of some of the pressure that uh, uh, was on Kawasaki last year. Um, at Clarky Cruz um, asked, uh, I've seen many rumors about the rev limit change on the Ducati and World Superbikes last year was because World, uh, because Kawasaki threw their toys out of the pram. What is the truth in that? And did it ultimately decide where the title went? I mean, I'll answer it. I don't think it made any difference. I think it was something else. But uh, go on, uh, tell us about the uh, about the rev limits. Well, the rev limits are always one of the most interesting non-stories of the year because it's fine to say that Ducati had a 250 rev drop last year. They were still the highest revving bike on the grid. They're all four-cylinder 1,000cc bikes with the same weight limit, but the Ducati in its road-going form can rev a lot higher than everything else. There was also no real account given that the year before Kawasaki lost 1,400 revs, you know? So Kawasaki and Ducati could have been a lot closer in revs, but Kawasaki had already brought in their new model and had to deal with the penalties that can be, can be put onto any bike in World SBK. So I think that, I think it all got blown out of proportion when people talk about the Ducati rev drop because it was only 250 revs. And when you talk to people up and down the paddock, we talk to engineers, we talk to riders, the Ducati was still a rocket ship. You know, like you could see in the final rounds of the year, there was one there was one time where they rode on board with Bautista down the start-finish straight and he passed Razgadioglu. And I, I honestly thought Top Rack had a 600 on him. Like it was such a significant difference. And that was with this massive drop of 250 revs that, you know, people make a big deal of it really doesn't have that much of an impact because the Ducati is still the fastest bike out there. It's all about trying to make sure that you're able to put everything into a more level playing field. That's why Kawasaki lost 1400 revs the year before, because it was about trying to use the, the algorithm basically to try and make sure that things can be more competitive. If fans want to watch the absolute limit of engineering, they have that in MotoGP. If you want to see what you can buy in the, in the shop, go out and race, you get that in World Superbikes. The Ducati costs over twice as much as any other bike on the grid. So it should be better than every other bike on the grid. I, like If I'm buying absolutely anything, if I'm buying a laptop and it costs twice as much as another laptop, I expect it to perform a hell of a lot better than my current laptop. And it's the yeah. same with bikes. Yeah, I mean, it was also instructive um, when Kawasaki lost so many revs uh, in 2018 uh, that they were already working towards understanding this. I remember, uh, I think you might have wrote a story about it, about Jonathan Ray 
already anticipating losing the revs and working on the uh, uh, working on the bike and making sure that he understood how the bike would actually behave with fewer revs so he could get the get the best out of it. And you have to think that Ducati would have known this was coming and they would have been you know uh, uh, practicing training with it, uh, perhaps going out in free practice uh, with, the, with limiting revs in, at some places to understand. Okay, this is how the bike feels. This is what we can do and what we can't do, and this is where we're going to have to change our shift points or whatever. Um, so yeah, it's it's not as if it's uh, you know they get a phone call one day and, and are told that they've lost two hundred and fifty uh, two hundred and fifty revs. They know a long time, uh, uh, several rounds ahead of time that this might happen to them. Uh, so they have time to prepare for it, and they have engineers who are getting ready to to, to actually implement it. Yeah, exactly. And uh, just to finish off Clarky's point about, you know, whether this had an ultimate effect on the championship as well. It really didn't because I don't think anyone can look at World Superbikes last year and not see that Bautista just crashed his way out of that championship. And Bautista did an unbelievable job at the start of the year. He rode incredibly, but it got to a point where suddenly he wasn't riding incredibly and he wasn't willing to just ride around. You know, he was crashing in races and crashing out of the lead as well. You know, I think it's often forgot that whenever he crashed in Jerez and when he crashed in Misano, he was out in front. He had already run, won two races in Jerez. He had a, you know, a gap of over a second after the first lap when he crashed and he just made a mistake. And that's fine. You can make a mistake, but you can't do that the next race weekend as well. Went to Misano, did the same thing. You know, in Donington, it was a wet race, but he crashed again. In Laguna, just everything got to him and you know he had a clash with top rack he had you know a couple of other things but i just think that you know the championship was decided by the six inches between bautista's ears rather than anything that was happening to change the bikes um we're going to phillip island obviously um in MotoGP, that's a yamaha track um is it a yamaha track in world Superbikes? well not really not really, because Yamaha last year in particular, they made a big change to their bike and they wanted to make sure that their bike wasn't about carrying corner speed, that you were able to be a bit more aggressive on the brake point. You were able to fight with riders and you didn't have to carry as much corner speed because the big problem for Yamaha, whenever they were trying to run the R1 like it wants to be run, was that they'd have to brake early, release the brake and roll through the corner really fast but that just left them vulnerable for attack under the braking point. So if you were trying to counteract that, you had to be a lot stronger in braking. And then it was all about trying to make sure that you weren't spending a huge amount of time on the side of the tire and you were able to fire out on the exit. So they've had to actually change their bike quite a bit to make it where it's more balanced for a 13 round season rather than just, you know, it should be good at Phillip Island. So I think that for, at the end of the day, on what we saw last year, it's not about the bike at Phillip Island. It's about the rider. And all these different manufacturers can be competitive at Phillip Island because you usually end up racing in a pack. A lot of that came down in the past to managing the tires through a race. Bautista last year figured a way that he could ride aggressively the whole way through a race and it surprised everyone. And now for this year, we have to wait and see what everyone else decides to do, how they approach their races. But it, it does tend to come more down to the rider than the bike at Phillip Island. And you can see that with, I think Haslam's had podiums on six different bikes down there. So it really is just about having a style that works down there as much as anything else. And, uh, you know, 
Top rack, uh, uh, Michael van der Mark has a new teammate and with Alex Lowe's going over to uh, Kawasaki and top rack, Rose Scott, Leo Glue coming on to, uh, uh, coming on to the Yamaha. How do you see top rack on that Yamaha? Uh, top rack looks really good in testing. You know, he looks like he's been able to take that bike like a duck to water. He looks like he's settled in nicely to the team. Um, I think it's going to be really interesting to see how the relationship between van der Mark and top rack evolves on track because Mikey's been able to show that he doesn't really care too much about having a rivalry with his teammate. He wants to have a harmonious pit box. He doesn't want to go out hating his teammate. He wants to beat his teammate, but he doesn't need to find that motivation from looking across the other side of the box and thinking, God, I hate that guy. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens when they're out on track battling with one another. But I think Toprak, he looks like he's adapted quite well to the Yamaha straight away. He looks really good on the bike, particularly at uh, Portimao. He really impressed me. So it's going to be interesting to see if he sort of forces Vandermark to change his style a little bit as well, because suddenly Vandermark will have data from another rider that he'll be able to look at and then see, all right, well, maybe I have to do things a little bit differently than I've done them in the past. And that's what's going to be really interesting. Um, what about BMW? It looks like BMW are uh, have a little bit more of a serious effort this year as well. Um, obviously, Sykes has um, has been reasonably quick in testing. Eugene Laverty looks like he's uh, still adapting. What do you expect from from them at Philip Island? Uh, well, the one thing it's going to come down to is how the electronics are working for the BMW. When you talk to Laverty, the biggest thing that he's found with the bike is that it really is a light switch. The power is either on or the power is off. And uh, he wants to try and make sure that he's able to get that into a much more manageable window. But it seemed that they were doing that in Portimao. So maybe for round one, they can be a lot closer. I think the two-day test down there is going to be really important for BMW. Um, right, well... Last question, the uh, question from a uh, from another user on uh, on Twitter, uh, 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 Oli Vavu. How many current World Superbike riders do you think are good enough for MotoGP? Well, it depends on what he means by good enough, because I think pretty much all of the World Superbike riders are capable of going on to the MotoGP grid and doing a good job qualifying and you know scoring points. Are any of them going to beat? Mark Marquez, no, they're not, because Mark Marquez is the best rider that we've ever seen. And he's had years of working with Michelin tires, years of working with Honda, and all the superbike riders would come across and they'd have to start from square one. Jonathan Ray might have won five world championships, but he didn't win them on a Michelin tire, and he's not going across as a 20-year-old. So I think all of those riders could go over, and if you know any of them were offered a good factory seat, they'd all be able to do a really good job, but they'd need to go over with the right situation around them. Otherwise, there isn't really that much point to going to MotoGP for them. They can go and win races in World Superbikes, challenge for a world championship, or they can go to MotoGP and have an experience like what happened to Eugene Laverty, where you go, you're on a bad bike, you stay on a bad bike for the second year, and it's really tough to get yourself moved up through the grid. Loris Baz is another example of that. Baz is a good rider. He had won World Superbike races as a very young rider whenever he was with Kawasaki. Went to MotoGP, stuck around for a decent length of time, but eventually the opportunities weren't there for him to be able to have a competitive ride and he looked to come back to World Superbikes. So I think that all of those riders are more than good enough. At the end of the day, they all raced against you know, MotoGP riders in, you know, one, two fives or Moto3 classes or European championships or, you know, some of them come from the Grand Prix paddock. But 
uh, to have an opportunity to win in MotoGP, they're probably not going to get that. So that's why this day in World Superbikes, as opposed to anything about their talent level or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, the the other thing that we, which uh, some of the MotoGP riders have said is that it's now basically taking you two years. Uh, when you switch bikes, it takes you two years to adapt to the new bike in the sense that you can go quite quickly, quite fast. Um, but to actually get the, you know, you you can get to sort of, you know, 90, 95%, 98% quite quickly, but that's 98% isn't going to win you any races. You know, it's, it's that, it's those last few percentage, the, 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 all of the details, all the little secrets of the bike. That's, um, uh, where you, that's the difference between success and failure. Um, and I mean, a great example was Maverick Vinales basically in the second half of last year. Uh, Yamaha wanted to test stuff and he basically said, nope, give it to Valentino. Um, he can test it. I'm not testing anything. I'm just going to get on and ride the bike and try not to touch the bike. Just, uh, understand, try and understand it as much as possible and get as much possible performance from it. Um, and that took him, who's been on that bike now for three, uh, for three and a half years, uh, you know, five, six races to actually start to make real progress. So if you think about someone coming over from the world superbike paddock onto a, uh, uh, onto a bike, even if it was somewhere like a factory back bike at Pramac or a factory back, um, Honda in, in LCR or whatever, um, they've, it, it's going to take them two, uh, two years just to get up to speed. Um, and you would have to find someone willing to give you, to have the patience with you. Through those uh, through those two years to before you can actually start to, to to perform, so it gets more and more difficult. Yeah, and I think it's worth remembering as well that like a lot of people are thinking that Scott Redding's going to go in and dominate and get the chance to go back to MotoGP. Scott had five years in MotoGP with different bikes: an open Honda, factory Honda, uh, factory well Pramac Ducati, and then a factory Aprilia. So he had lots of different opportunities and he shows just how difficult it is to get those right opportunities even for a rider that now is you know finally being regarded as you know that world class uh world class racer so it shows just how difficult it is to get those opportunities in MotoGP now whereas you can go to world superbikes and you can get those chances to show how good you can be yeah exactly i think also it, it is um it's possibly a little bit easier to um, uh, to get sort of you know a, a respectable result in world superbikes enough to satisfy your bosses and uh, uh, and earn you another contract. Whereas, um, well, we see we see it in the factory Ducati team in MotoGP. I mean, they spend basically all year. Um, fishing around for who they're going to sign to replace their current riders. Almost, you know, like uh, uh, Dovi's, the, Dovi, the, the ink on Dovi's signature was uh, barely dry. Uh, and Ducati were already trying to contact other riders to replace him. So that's, it, it's not, um, the, the level of patience, I think, is, uh, is one of the big differentiating, uh, differentiating factors there. Yeah, definitely. I'd agree with that as well, Dave. Right. Well, I think uh, that's about it. Um, we covered an awful lot of uh, 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 awful lot of ground in this podcast. Thank you very much for sending your uh, questions in. That was uh, very good. I think it generated some fairly interesting 
um, uh, discussions. Uh, thank you very much, uh, uh, Steve, for your time. Thank you very much, listeners, well, Twitter users for your questions, uh, listeners for actually listening to us. Uh, special thanks to our uh, patrons for helping us to keep the podcast going. Um, we've added a an extra uh, tier to the patron now. You not only get um, um, for, I think, $3, you get uh, access to some uh, uh, unique audio and for $10, dollars uh, you will be able to ask us some questions and we will answer your questions on the uh, uh, on the podcast um make sure you follow us on the social medias um uh, twitter.com slash paddock pass pod and facebook.com slash paddock pass podcast uh again patreon patreon.com slash paddock pass podcast um Thank you very much for listening to us. Make sure you leave us a rating and a review on your podcast listener of choice, be it Spotify or uh, SoundCloud or wherever else you get your podcast from. Thank you very much for listening and until the next time.